Good morning and welcome to the Hub City Church. We hope you're having a great start to the new year and we're so glad you're here with us for worship this morning. As the Hub City Church, we exist to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like to hear more about our vision, or if you're interested in joining our serve teams, community groups, or men's and women's ministries, you can visit our website, thehubcitychurch.org, or just text the word Hub City to 97000 and we'll follow up with you in the next few days. Community groups will begin meeting again next Sunday, and men's and women's ministries will resume this month with the guys meeting on the 17th and the ladies meeting on the 24th. If you haven't attended one of those yet, we would love to have you join us at 6 p.m. in the sanctuary. The Lord has been so faithful in continuing to grow our church body. To help accommodate those looking for seating, it would be super helpful to keep end seats open so our ushers are able to easily find seats for those coming into the service because they're always welcome in service, and we have a nursing mother's room with our service streaming live just outside the lobby to the left. Again, we're so glad you're here. Let's worship Jesus together. Good morning again, and Happy New Year again. My name is Tad Anderson. I'm the lead teaching pastor here for the Hub City Church, and we are so grateful that you're here uh, on this uh, first Sunday of 2024, and uh, yeah, awesome. Whoop. So that's, that's cool. Uh, we have some, some things coming up on the schedule that I want to uh, just make you aware of. The, the first thing is community groups and discipleship ministries are uh, beginning again. Next week, so uh, for discipleship ministries, men's and women's, uh, the guys are going to start back on the third week, the girls are going to start back on the fourth week, and we will start back with uh, groups on Sundays starting next Sunday evening, okay? Uh, I think the students, they're hardcore, they never, uh, they never stop, so they're still going strong. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, also every year in January for the past several years, we have done, uh, we've started off together by doing 21 days of prayer and fasting. So we do intend to do that again this year. Um, and we'll have some, some content available for you that will kind of help you through that process. We'll have that avail available for you next week as well. Later in the month, we'll do uh, towards the end of our, our fast together and our time of prayer, we'll do a night of worship uh, and then first thing in February, we'll have our 2024, um, like our first business meeting of the year. We call it a vision meeting, but it's like a church business meeting. I don't like calling it that, you know, because it's not really like that, you know, like you used to experience in the Baptist church. Anyway, it's, it's, it's fun. It's a fun, fun business meeting. So talking about all that God has done and what we're hopeful for for this year. So uh, all that's coming up. Hope you'll plan uh, to be with us for all of that. But this morning... Uh, we're beginning our first sermon series of the year titled Therefore. Uh, <clears throat> it's a series on the basic measures of a gospel-centered disciple. We'll spend the majority of this year walking through entire books of the Bible expositionally, but each January, we take a few weeks at the beginning of the new year to kind of reorient ourselves. We need to be reoriented, some of us, uh, to who we are and what we're about as a church. And so uh, here's kind of the thinking behind this title. Uh, the word therefore is a very common one in the Bible. Translations will vary in their renderings, but in the actual like Greek New Testament, it occurs upwards of 500 times. And the word therefore is like a, think of it like a bridge, okay? A bridge between a particular truth and its proper response. Like it's, it's chilly outside, therefore you should wear a sweater. That's true today, right? Or uh, it's good to stay healthy, therefore you should exercise regularly. Lots of people remembering that one this week. 
uh, or you're a baby in a church service, and you got to let people know that you're there, and so they can see how cute you are, you know, things like that. So anyway, you, you, you get the point. Um, last year, when we went through the process of changing our name to the Hub City Church, we, we rewrote our mission statement, uh, re-articulated our core values, and at the end of all that, we came up with six of what we call missional measures. Basically, there's six things we believe all faithful Christians will do in participation with their church. Like if someone is aiming to be a disciple and make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey God's word, the glory of God, these six measures are what we think um, that'll look like in action, if that makes sense. Each one of them is uh, heavily backed up by the therefores of Scripture, and so uh, that's what I'm going to aim to show you throughout this series, all right? Uh, so let's go ahead, let's pray once again, and we'll get started. Father, God, you are so good, and we do praise you, God, for the grace of, of a new year. And God, we believe that you are going to do new things this year among us as your, uh, your church. But God, we know because of your word, that the way that you're going to do those new things is not new. It's going to be in the same way that you always have, really for the same goal that we have uh, sung about together this morning, Father, to glorify yourself through the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for that gospel that has brought us together um, as your church, and we're thankful, God, that you have given the gift of the church to the church. God, thank you for this uh, body, this group of men and women who uh, love you and who do want to make disciples, who believe the gospel, who abide in Jesus, and who, who just obey your word and make much of you in everything that they do all throughout their lives. So, Father, I pray that that's what this year would be full of. And I pray now, God, that this sermon series here as we start, God, that that's what it would be about, that people um, at the start of this new year would decide that they want to be even more faithful to you this year than they were last year, God. They want to continue doing the same things for the same goal of Jesus being magnified and glorified among us. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, you know, we live in a society that is absolutely engulfed in what is called expressive individualism. I get this term from Carl Truman, who wrote uh, a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Listen to this um, societal shift that he hits on in the book. It says, the self, using air quotes there, the self that Western civilization cultivated up until just a few hundred years ago was what Harvard political theorist Michael Sandel described as an encumbered self in contrast to modernity's unencumbered self. The person was a creature of God who sought to conform himself to the truth, to objective moral standards in pursuit of eternal life. Modern man, however, seeks to be true to himself. Rather than conform thoughts, feelings, and actions to objective reality, man's inner life itself becomes the source of truth. The modern self finds himself in the midst of what Robert Ballah has described as a culture of expressive individualism, where each of us seeks to give expression to our individual inner lives rather than seeing ourselves as embedded in communities and bound by natural and supernatural laws. Authenticity to inner feelings rather than adherence to transcendent truths becomes the norm. Let me uh, summarize this in layman's terms. Uh, in today's world, it's often said that truth is not objective. That is set in stone, but it's subjective. In other words, everyone has their own truth. Have you heard this? And thus the message undergirding nearly every children's TV show is, whatever you think, whatever you feel, whatever you want is great. No one can tell you you're wrong. Just go for it. You do you, boo. Right? And while I trust you're aware that 
uh, the end of that spectrum is very confused about gender identity and angry about patriarchy. Uh, I'm more concerned this morning with kind of the shallow end of the pool or the subtler expressions of uh, expressive individualism. You see, Carl Truman argues that this mindset was birthed centuries ago, but let's just go back you know, a few decades into, let's say, my childhood. Okay? Um, I, like many in this room, was a millennial kid raised by uh, baby boomer parents, and before I say this, I just want you to know I love my parents very much. Um, and appreciate so much of how they raised me. This is not a resentful rant. This is a reflective observation. Okay, um, But something they would always say to me growing up, maybe your parents said something uh, similar. They would say, you know, Tad, if you put your mind to it, you can be and do whatever you want one day. Right? And listen, I, I know what they meant. They meant that if I worked hard, I could reach my potential through whatever career path I chose. And for that, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. I became, a, a, by God's grace, a predetermined young man because of their encouragement. I think the Lord has, um, again, by his grace, redeemed that for his glory. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. That same collective encouragement has done more than maybe any parent ever imagined that it would. It has turned into a multi-generational mantra that goes something like this. I can do whatever I want. Or not. I can also choose to not do whatever I don't want. Because only I am in charge of me. Right? Why are we talking about this? Well, because in contrast to the world around us, church, we believe in objective truth. We believe in objective truth. You see, the Bible tells us the source of objective truth is God, who is who he is, and who tells us very clearly that he does not change. His attributes, his character, and moral standards, they have stayed the same from the very beginning, though God doesn't have a beginning or an end. He is unchanging, though, right? He is the one. If you started your Bible reading plan in January like you're supposed to, <laughs> all right, you'll start today. It's okay, you know. But it, here's the first words that you'll read, right? In the beginning, God. He's the one who created the universe and everything in it. And thus, he alone has the authority to tell us how we are to function within its confines. Unless you, lest you hear this and think it sounds harsh, okay? Let me tell you more about the character of God. He is, as you read, you realize he is not a cruel tyrant, but a loving father. And so his insistence that uh, we conform to his design for life is not mean and inconsiderate, but the opposite. He has given us his word as a great kindness that we might flourish in the world that he has made by doing things the way that he intends for them to be done. Okay? So do you see, do you see how the Bible <laughs> presents a real challenge to the I can do and be whatever I want mindset of our time. <laughs> now, the Bible does say that if you're a Christian, that you're free, doesn't it? <laughs> it does say that. But there's a difference between life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or American freedom, and freedom in Christ. We've got to define our terms. See, American freedom is more or less, it really is, freedom to do whatever you want, you know, under the law, okay? Or you can break the law, too, and then you're free to do that. I'll put you in jail. But anyway, um, freedom in Christ is not the same as American freedom. Freedom in Christ is not the freedom to do whatever you want. It's not. See, because the Bible tells us 
that we all started out trying to do whatever we want. And that was bad, wasn't it? It's called sin. It makes a big mess. But freedom in Christ is actually freedom from the desire to sin and the freedom instead to want and to do what God wants. <laughs> this is good. This is good. We talked about, we, we sang about this. We were created, friends, to live for God as his image bearers. And so biblical freedom, freedom in Christ, is restoration of the freedom to live as we were originally created to live for the glory of God. Okay, and this is basically a short synopsis of the biblical worldview, right? This is what we believe, the big picture, or a gospel-centered worldview, that God is good and that he created everything for his glory, mankind being the pinnacle or the, the crown of his creation, right? But mankind sinned and deviated from God's good design. And then man found himself in a world marred by his poor decision to live apart from God. And this sent man on a, a futile you know, downward spiral, a search for escape from his self-induced brokenness. So God, in his continued kindness, knowing that we had no hope of helping ourselves out of our own sin, he sent his son Jesus in the form of sinful man to save man, to rescue us, right? Jesus lived a perfect life, he died a brutal death on the cross. And then three days later, he rose again. His perfect life became a gift that he credited to man, right? His death became an atonement or a full payment for man's sin. And his resurrection became man's only hope of enjoying eternal life with God that he was made for. Right. All we have to do, Scripture tells us, all we have to do is trust this message of good news called the gospel. That's all we have to do. And when we believe the gospel, the Bible says we're born again. We're born again. All our sin is forgiven. We're immediately justified as children of God who are filled up with his Holy Spirit and empowered to recover and pursue a life lived in right relationship with him again. Right? Maybe you know this. Based on the amens and that's right. Mm, like I, you, a lot of you know this. I'm glad that you do. I'm glad that you do. But let me just make one final thing about it really clear. We don't think that this is one way among many. Regardless of what Oprah says, we believe that the gospel is the objective truth. The truth about the relationship between God and man the meaning of life and eternity, okay? This is it. <laughs> Biblical Christianity, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone exclusively. That's what all the alones mean. <laughs> all human history hinges on Jesus because he is Lord, God, and Savior. There is only one way to the Father, and it's through him. It's through him. Now, I know that was a long lead up, but here's why I needed to do it, at least here in week one. It's because these realities are what undergird our missional measures, okay? The next six weeks are not going to be passionate pleas with you to do what Pat Anderson wants, or even what you know, the Hub City Church leadership wants for our personal benefit or 
selfish gain. No, uh, these next six weeks are things that we are convinced that Christians do. That Christians do. Imperfectly, for sure. But nevertheless, they do them. Because belief in the gospel has some very clear, life-altering, absolute implications. It does. <laughs> if the gospel is true, and it is, then our response to it is of the utmost seriousness. As Aldous Huxley, the author of Brave New World, wrote in 1963, facts do not cease to exist because they're ignored. And the fact is that if Jesus came, died, and rose again, that changes everything. It changes everything. These monumental facts have major implications, major therefores, if you will, that are very clear, that is indisputable, that is not up for debate or negotiation, life-altering, that is, uh, you can't and won't stay the same if you're honestly living these things out, and absolute, that is, no one is exempt due to age or position or preference. The spiritual weight of the gospel is simply too great for anyone who believes it to slip out from underneath. It's all pervasive effects. Jesus is simply too amazing. And his model for living is too compelling for us to do it halfway for any real length of time. You're either growing into greater and greater commitment to these things, or you're giving up on them progressively over time. There's no middle ground. Now, I, I know that I'm saying this in a really strong way this morning, but I intend to because of passages like this in James chapter 2, where it says, this is James, little brother Jesus, who says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needy, needed for the body, what good is that? Can you hear his tone here? What good is that? So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. James is saying it's pointless to say that you're a Christian if you have no intention of living like one. And his example here in this, in this passage is partly about, you know, it's partly about, it's really clever here, partly about uh, what kind of works are expected of us. It's also partially just to make an, a mockery of nominal faith. Right, So he says, if, for instance, this morning, a brother or sister attended our gathering and their kids have no winter jackets, right? they're, and they're talking about how they just lost a job and struggling to put food on the table, our response was to pat them on the back and just say, well, Jesus loves you. Go grab a bite to eat and bundle up. And then we just sent them on their way without actually trying to help them. That would be shameful and stupid, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, like, no one would see that and think our faith was genuine. It would look like we were all talk and no walk. His point is, there are people whose entire faith is characterized by this kind of inconsistency. Right? They, they're literally just saying religious words, speaking Christianese, and living a totally unchanged life that looks nothing like biblical Christianity. Right? And he's saying, if that describes you, you're still spiritually dead. Because new life in Christ, while, while it starts with faith alone, it brings action with it. Works. Right? Uh, this, passage in, you know, this passage in James is really just an echo of Jesus' words when he said even more explicitly in John 14, 15, if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. Now, you know, if he just said that one time, maybe we forget. He goes on to make this emphatic. You know, he repeats it three times, uh, you know, in 10 verses. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Then you jump ahead to verse 21. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Then in John 14, 24, he really covers his bases. Whoever does not love me <laughs> does not keep my words, right? So you see, Jesus, Jesus does not leave any room for genuine faith characterized by mere intellectual assent, right? This idea of having his words but not keeping them. He's very polarizing about it. He says, if you do what I say, <laughs> that's what true faith, true love for me looks like. If you don't do what I say, then you don't. You don't. And if you keep reading, because I, I, I did, <laughs> there's no qualification there's no extenuating details afterward. There's, there's no fine print that comes after that. When it comes to faith in Jesus, he says, the proof of love is obedience, period, right? So again, each week over the next several weeks, we'll talk about one of these clear gospel implications or therefores, right? And today, we're going to start with a commitment to community. And, you know, as I was preparing for this message, I was feeling a little bit insecure because I feel like, as I feel like I harp on the necessity for community all the time. Uh, but as I wrestled with that, uh, because I don't want to be unnecessarily redundant, I realized that, you know, in my seven years of, you know, being a pastor within this church body, Regular, committed community has gotten harder and harder to maintain, right? There was, there was once a time about, about, you know, back in the day, about 80% of our Sunday attendance was regularly involved in community group. And by regularly involved, I mean, you know, just present mostly every time we would get together. And uh, for whatever reason, it's just way less now. It's just way less, maybe 40 or 50%. These are, you know, there are a lot of people who are on our community group listings or roles, whatever you want to call them, but, you know, but very few attend every week. And our men's and women's ministries are really great, I think. It feels like we've tried to make them a good time of fellowship and, and trust and, and I hope really a helpful time for discipleship conversations. But, you know, our men's ministry probably has, you know, 15 to 20 guys on a good week. And, you know, I used to regularly have 12 guys just in a little men's group that I led at Starbucks, you know, back in the day. So I say that up front because I think it will give some gravity to the text we're about to read. And because I want you to know, community is not like my pet topic, you know, that I just love to discuss incessantly, okay? No, I, I hit on it a lot because it seems to really be a need in this hour of redemptive history, at least when you read texts like this one in Hebrews chapter 10. Let's read it. Uh, Hebrews 10, we're going to start in verse 19. Guess what it says first? Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. So, translation, therefore, because of the gospel, right, because of what Jesus has done in reconciling us back to God, verse 22, he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So, wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty straightforward, right? 
Um, because of the gospel, we should be gathering together a lot. Uh, and as time goes on, he says, uh, we should be together more, not less. To, to not be, he actually says, is deliberate sin, right? So I, I love this quote from Jonathan Lehman of Nine Marks, a ministry that produces resources for building healthy churches. He says, sometimes people like to say that a church is a people, not a place. It's slightly more accurate to say that a church is a people assembled in a place. Regularly gathering together is necessary for a church to be a church. Just like a team has to gather to play in order to be a team. Jesus organized Christianity this way. Spiritual things happen when Christians stand elbow to elbow, breathe the same air, join our voices in song, hear the same sermon, and partake of one bread. You look around and you think, I'm not alone in this faith. What might we do together? That quote is from a book he wrote with Colin Hansen after the pandemic called Rediscover Church, Why the Body of Christ is Essential. We have some copies if you'd like one, but here's the crazy thing about writing a book like that, and I guess really the crazy thing about preaching a sermon like this, um, they're about something that, to my knowledge, Hebrews 10 is the only explicit reference to in the New Testament. Commitment to community. Commitment to community. Commitment to gathering regularly with the people in your church. The author of Hebrews evidently knew there was some kind of a pattern with you know, some percentage of people not being as committed as they, they should be, since he says, you know, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, you know, he says, right? But it, it obviously isn't as pressing of an issue for Paul or, or Peter or the other authors of, of the New Testament because they don't really hit on it in the same way. I mean, sure, they, they address problems within the community, but attendance and participation together, commitment, doesn't seem to be one worth expounding on at length, right? And so my, my first point on the subject at hand is that biblical community is largely assumed in the New Testament because the restoration of our communion with God logically unites us with his holy covenant people. Okay. It's a logical connection. That's why it's largely assumed in the New Testament. Have you ever considered that the vast majority of the New Testament is written to groups of believers? Even the letters that are written to individuals, they don't really just concern that individual. It's about how they relate to the other believers there in their church. Let me read you a few scriptures to show you. It's really at the beginning of all these letters, you see this. First uh, Corinthians 1, verse 2 says, To the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Romans 1, 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, right? I could go on, but I won't. Just look it up yourself later. Uh, it's all written to and with the intent of being applied in the context of a group, right? This is because as, as we read, as we read from, from Lehman a moment ago, Jesus made Christianity to function like a team, Team Jesus, right? <laughs> Plurality is inherent in the design, right? Think about the Bible's language regarding our identity as believers. We're called children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the language of immediate family under one roof, right? Or how about being called members of the same body? How much more intimate can it get than that? Or disciples, which means learners or students in the same class with the same teacher, Jesus, again. 
or citizens and ambassadors in a foreign land who are from the same holy nation. We're, we're all here for the same purpose. One, we're on the same mission, right? We all speak the same language. And so this is why I say that the restoration of our communion with God logically unites us with his set-apart covenant people, right? I mean, okay. Think about this. Pretend that you somehow grew up on a desert island with nothing from the outside world except the Bible. (laughs) And and as you studied it, you were born again. You became a a Christian. And in the course of time, you were rescued and, and brought into society. And the first thing you were eager to do is meet some more believers. Right? That's probably what would happen. But as you did, you realize that many of them describe church as just a service that they attend, like once a week for about 90 minutes, as opposed to this super connected, like-minded group of people who are just together with with one another almost all the time. You'd be confused, right? You'd probably be thinking that it didn't match up with what you'd been reading all those years, that it was so much less committed than what you expected. It might even feel sad, like a letdown, right? In his book, Tortured for Christ, Richard Wormbrand had a sense of this feeling. He was a Romanian priest who was brutally tortured for his faith for 14 years in a communist prison. And after being released and coming to the U.S., he said, he said, he suffered more pain here in the West than he ever did in a communist jail because of the disparity of faith between the fervent underground church and the lukewarm American church. He said, quote, whoever has known the spiritual beauty of the underground church cannot be satisfied anymore with the emptiness of some Western churches. All that to say, both in the New Testament and in most of the world for most of history, commitment to gather frequently, that's not really been the thing that needed to be taught. We're in a strange category here. We're not the norm. Because of our level of privilege, wealth, and expressive individualism as American Christians, we have to have preached to us what has been largely assumed in the other contexts of Christendom. That the restoration of our communion with God logically unites us with his holy covenant people. Now, I considered going on longer about the theology of God's intention to make a people for himself that we see even throughout the, woven throughout the Old Testament, but I could, I mean, I could do that, but I don't think that's necessary. I think the truth is we know, don't we? We We know. We know that any lack of commitment from us is probably not due to a lack of knowing better. I think it's really, it's forgetfulness of the priority. So let's spend our last little bit together talking about why community should always remain a top priority for us as followers of Jesus. Here it is in your notes. It says, commitment to the gospel-centered community of the church means committing to meet often with its members with with the desire to do what cannot be done alone, right? I, I truly think that this is at the root of why a tight-knit church community has gotten harder to maintain over the years, If I don't say this, someone will remind me. So yes, I I know COVID had a big part in it. But here's why I think it did. I think what COVID did, 
After the whole you know, toilet paper debacle, remember that? <laughs> Due to mass panic, you know, they had to stop, had to figure out where you could get toilet paper. I think after that, <laughs> that like six-month span or however long that we weren't allowed to gather, I think it showed us just how self-sustained we can be in America, actually. How long we can go just staying home, ordering everything on Amazon, never having to rely on another physical person for anything, right? I mean, sure, there were negative mental and emotional side effects we learned, but I think we also learned that we don't technically have to say yes to everything and that sometimes it's easier and more comfortable to bail on plans and just stay home because we feel like it. And actually, meeting two, three, even four times a week with our church in some way, it started to seem excessive, didn't it? When it wasn't. It wasn't. That was just normal. It was just what Christians do, biblically. They get together often. Because as you read scripture, you realize there are so many things that we're called to do that we can't do alone, right? We saw that back in Hebrews 10. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful and let us consider how to Stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, right? So, so here are just, as we wrap up, here are just three things I think are clear to see from this passage and supported elsewhere that we can't do alone. Here's the first one. <laughs> Loving and caring for one another. Loving and caring for one another. Now, before you eye roll and think, okay, preacher, we know, love each other and care about each other, right? Duh. Listen to this, okay? 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers... All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, this is convicting. I'm sure many of you have heard this. But he's saying that there are like prominent parts of the body, parts that get a lot of praise, get seen and appreciated a lot. And he's saying those parts of the body actually need, they need the parts that are seen much less frequently. And vice versa. Now, people who are starting to get older understand this because there are parts up in here, you know, that can get hurt just by sleeping wrong or turn your head too fast, right? Usually, you wouldn't give them that much attention, but you start to realize how important they are if you neglect them. You have to start, you know, taking extra care of them by stretching you're in your 20s, you're like, what's that, you know? Like, <laughs> stretching, buying a special, I can't believe I did this, buying a special Tempur-Pedic pillow to sleep on. <laughs> you sleep wrong enough times, you do that, you know? Or wearing special shoes, or taking a special vitamin, and so on and so forth. You see, the, a church body is the same way. Loving your church, loving your church, in a surface level, kind of warm feelings kind of way, 
is not the only kind of love that we're called to have for our church. It should be more personal than that. We're called to have the the kind of love that can only be given when we're together, member to member, talking, getting to know each other, learning about needs, celebrating the good stuff, working through the hard stuff, praying for each other, right? You can't offer care to people who you don't know with, or sorry, who you don't know and that you're not with. Sorry, I botched that one. Let's start over. (laughs) You can't offer care to people who you don't know and that you're not with. There are real people in this church body, this church family, who maybe you're not that close with yet, who need you. They need you. Or who you might need next week, next month, next year. I don't know. But you've got to start putting in the time now. Loving one another, being on a first name basis, having each other's number, texting back and forth, right? Checking in, grabbing coffee, expecting to see each other at community group or men's and women's ministry, Sunday morning, serving together and so forth. Guys, this is not a competency thing. This is not a competency thing. I, I know. We, we have a lot of successful, talented, competent people here. We do. But regardless of how capable you are, you can't love and care for your church if you don't spend time with them. It's just not possible. It requires togetherness. It requires togetherness. Okay, here's the next thing. Strengthening and encouraging one another. You can't do that alone. You can't do that alone. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Last year, early on, as we were thinking about um, changing the name of our church, uh, a dear older sister in the Lord Marge Langley, who serves on our finance team, she asked me to meet just to understand some of the changes, you know, that we proposed. And, you know, at at that point in the year, (laughs) things were still pretty uncertain regarding how we were going to fare financially and and so forth. And the previous year had been pretty hard, right? And uh, I couldn't tell you specifically any particular thing that she said to me in those few moments together. But after she gave her thoughts about the business-related stuff, can I just tell you, she was so kind to me. I could tear up thinking of She was so kind to me, and she encouraged me with the gospel. And she told me she was in support and that she... She just loved my family. And just being real, I didn't go to that meeting for that, man. That's not why I met with Marge that day. I thought I was there to help her. (laughs) She didn't know I was going to say this, but she helped me more in those few moments together than I possibly could have helped her. I'm certain of that. Church, we need the wisdom and the experience and the perspectives of the other members of our church family. And sometimes we need to be reminded to rely on the truths that we already know we believe. Do you get that? 
Sometimes we need somebody to come along and just remind us about what we believe, to remind us of the promises of God again. We're feeling faint-hearted or, or weak. We need the wind put back in our sails, the gospel, not, not some weird kind of, you know, feely. We need the gospel wind put back in our sails sometimes with a timely word from a brother or sister in Christ. We can't do that for ourselves. We can't do that for ourselves. Or sometimes, maybe we need to be admonished. <laughs> An older brother I meet with recently admonished me. I'd taken a long time to respond to his email that he'd sent. I apologized to him and said I'd just been busy, you know. And um, Knowing me, he said, he looked right at me and said, ah, I think that's an excuse. He was right. He was right. I needed to be more prompt and not leave people on the hook just because I felt overwhelmed. Again, had he not taken the risk to give me a quick, loving correction, I may have just continued making an excuse for myself where I needed to do better, right? So committing to the gospel-centered community of the church means committing to meet often with its members, with the desire to do what can't be done alone, loving and caring for one another, strengthening and encouraging one another, and finally, doing nothing and everything together with food, okay? <laughs> uh, love Baptists, right? These passages and acts... <laughs> They never get old, Acts 2 and Acts 4. Listen to them with, with fresh ears this morning. Acts 2 says, talking about the early church, this is, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 4, 32 says, Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. When you hear these descriptions about the early church, doesn't something just well up in you? Aren't you just like, man, I want that. I want that for my church. A church just feels like I'm one heart with them, just sharing our stuff and helping each other out and meeting each other's needs and eating together in each other's homes, letting our kids play while we talk about life and crack jokes and cut up and share struggles. Don't, don't miss this part. Knowing we can trust each other, like family, it's like we can't trust anybody in this crazy world, doesn't it? Just want a family you can trust? Like more than your family? <laughs> it's a beautiful thing, really. But it takes commitment. It takes commitment. Willingness to give up your time, to put in effort, to push past initial awkwardness, to you know, overlook each other's little weirdnesses. Or big weirdnesses if you hang out with me, you know? Like, it, it, it takes regular attendance of the sanctioned things until eventually they're, you know, unplanned organic things that are growing, too. I'm going to tell you the truth. I've already, I've already been doing that, but I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to tell you the truth. <laughs> Why do preachers say things like that? Yeah, I don't know. All right. This is going to be inconvenient sometimes. It's going to be inconvenient sometimes. Go into a community group every Sunday evening. Unless you're sick, stay home. Um, or, you know, rushing straight from work to the church building on Wednesday evenings for men's or women's ministry or student ministry or whatever. You're going to have other things in your life that feel more pressing. You will. Laundry. 
four kids, man. Laundry's pressing, you know, like, <laughs> or getting ready for the week, you know, or having some me time to just do nothing. I get it. I get that. You think pastors always want to go to community group? <laughs> sure, maybe they do their best to act like it. But we're human too. We get tired. We want to have a lazy afternoon here and there. But listen, here is what pastors and church leaders have to do that all Christians should learn to do. You ready? Commit. Commit to be there ahead of time, regardless of how you're feeling in the moment. That's it. <laughs> Commit to be in community ahead of time before you get to the feelings of the moment. Here's why. Because feelings come and go. But when something is really a priority, you don't change your mind about it just because you're feeling a little bit tired. <laughs> you get up, you drink a cup of coffee, and you go anyway. <laughs> you go anyway. And afterward, 95% of the time, you're glad that you did. Right? You're glad you did. Even if you didn't feel like it on the front end, you're glad you did. And for the other 5% of the time, you go home knowing you did the right thing, and you go to sleep, and that fixes it, okay? So that's, that's it. So you try again the next day, all right? I don't know. But so listen, I'm, I'm going to stop now. Will you commit to meeting regularly in biblical community in 2024? Will you? That's the question. I can't promise you that it's always going to be easy. But here's what I can tell you based on Scripture. It's what Christians do. It's what Christians do because of the gospel. And I think if you do, ultimately, you will be glad that you did. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as we see the day of Christ's return drawing near. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you for the gospel. It's the only reason a mess, a scrub like me is up here able to talk about your word. I'm so thankful, God, that you loved me first, that you loved us first, that we had no hope in the world, and you sent Jesus, the only one that could be our hope. God, thank you that he paid it all, that he lived the perfect life that we couldn't, that he died the brutal death on the cross that we deserve, paying for all our sin. Even the ones we haven't sinned yet, God, thank you for Jesus, how he became our atonement, our justification. And God, thank you for his resurrection that gives us life, God. I pray that we would be a church that has life together and that lives our collective life together like we have the life that you give. And God, that we would be obedient to these therefores, these really clear, life-altering, absolute implications, God, that are just unavoidable. 
would we be together this year, God, in new ways, in fresh ways, in deeper ways? Would we form friendships this year, God? Would we find people in this church body, God, that we confess sins to that we've never told anybody about and get free? that we cry with, that we celebrate our kids' birthdays with, God, that we go on trips together with. God, will we really commit to community in 2024 in a way that looks like the church we read about? That's a lot, God. I can't do that. I pray that you will among us by the power of Jesus. It's in his name. Amen.